Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. This is the number one listened to podcast in the world. I think it's the content, honestly. It's uh, the Predatory Podcast. We're talking about business and entrepreneurial legal services. Um, and the reason we're doing this podcast is really because we see a lot of things from our angle that a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs don't see. So you see a lot of information about starting a business, running a business, buying a business, getting motivated to start a business, everything on YouTube, but you don't see a lot of stuff from our perspective, which is kind of the nuts and bolts legal stuff, which, um, you know, is kind of important, it turns out, at the end of the day. So um, thank you for your, for your support and your listening. We shot to number one on Apple Podcasts um, and Spotify. Those are total falsehoods, but we'll get there eventually. Um, so this podcast, we're calling 1099 Problems because we want to address uh, something we run into with a lot of our entrepreneurial clients. And that is a lot of people want to just make their employees or the people that are working for them, I should say, because to say employees already implies um, what we're going to be talking about. But the people that are working for you, the temptation is to just make them all 1099s. So just to establish a difference real quick, I'll introduce this and I'll let you go, Brock. Um, the difference between a 1099 and an employee with, with a W-2, what's called a w Form W-2, which means it's something you submit to the IRS showing the wages that you paid to them, showing the taxes that you withheld for them, and the self-employment tax. The difference between those two things um, is one is not working for you technically. They're working as what's called an independent contractor. And then if you're an employee, you're actually working for the company as an employee. And there's a legal difference between those two things. So the temptation a lot of people have when they're starting a business is just make everything 1099 because that sounds easier. I don't have to pay their self-employment tax. I don't have to do all this withholding stuff. They have to do all that. So it seems easier to do that, but that can actually get you into trouble. So, Yeah, the, yeah, the distinction's pretty easy and, and right. It, it conceptually, you think, okay, employee, W-2, independent contractor, 1099. Right. And you just think about, and you think about it in terms of dollars and cents, 1099 generally comes out ahead because the business just has a business expense and you let the independent contractor deal with all the employment-related taxes. Right. And we could do another podcast on how those are calculated, et cetera, and, and what those look like for independent contractors and W-2s, right? This is more the distinction between the two, I think. Right. And with a W-2, there's more tax friction. Right. So if you're just looking at in terms of the gross margin, people are going to defer to 1099s. But the problem is, is that whether a person working for you is classified as an employee or an independent contractor is not up to you. It's up to right. the, the state rules, which there is always an employment commission in each state. It's up to the federal rules. Right. And... Um, the, you, you basically don't get to make the decision except for the fact of whether or not you're um, set up the relationship with the individual in such a way that falls in one of those two buckets. Yes, but to be clear, um, yes. So unfortunately, you can't just both agree that, hey, I'm an independent contractor, and it doesn't work that way because the classification is based off of objective factors it's not just a it's not just a creature of contract which means you can't just call a contract an independent contractor agreement and assume that that that's what it is it doesn't always work that way and part of the reason the reason this comes in terms of just pure dollars and cents the reason this comes into play is because with w2 
uh, some people call it self-employment, FICA, withholding. There's a couple different names for it, but they're all kind of rotating around the same thing. You have to pay that on behalf of your employee. Uh, sorry, half of it on behalf of your employee. It comes out to about 15% of the wages, and it's so you, the the company's responsibility is about 7.5% roughly, and that 7.5% is addition, an additional tax expense that the company has to pay. Um, so a lot of people don't want to do it just in terms of pure dollars and cents because they got to pay that additional 7.5% um, for the employees. But so, so the question is, is how do we get how do we determine whether or not someone providing services to us is a an independent contractor or an employee right right and this is where we're introducing a brand new segment ladies and gentlemen well do you want to talk about the <laughs> factors first yeah we'll say that for the end and and our sponsor we don't have a sponsor but um we'll have one one day so the factors um so and this is probably going to be a separate video too because this is going to be broken down in as clean a possible way as we possibly can there's there's factors for determining whether or not somebody's a 1099 independent contractor or a W-2 employee. And there's basically three different branches of legal authority that you can follow. The first one is the IRS, right? And really, that's probably the best ones because they're the ones that are going to be making the determination at the end of the day. They're the ones that are going to be coming after you, most likely. There's common law, which is just different states and courts, et cetera, et cetera, that determine little factor tests for whether or not somebody was an employee. And then um, there's also um, you can oh, have the state employment commissions as well. Yes, yes, that was the third one. Yes, yeah, so um, the employment commissions. So, the, and yeah, and, and the distinction with respect to the the federal questions. So let's just focus on like the federal questions of what are what, what is an employee versus an independent contractor. And the IRS originally published twenty factors. Right. And then the tax court came in and they provided a seven factor test. And the factors aren't, um, it isn't that one is emphasized over the other necessarily. It's really just a facts and circumstances test with all these different factors. And I think that you can generally summarize them as um, control is, right. is one of the biggest ones. Are you controlling? how that person is doing the work that they're doing, when they're doing it, um, who they're allowed to do it for. Are you dictating the the types of materials they're allowed to use to, right. to create the product? Um, there's, if you are, and, and, the, and in terms of the spectrum, the more control you're exercising over the person, the more likely that person's an employee. Right. So, yeah, that was the third authority I was looking for was the tax court um, because they're kind of an authority on interpreting what the IRS is putting out into the ether. But the three factors that the IRS kind of boils it down to is a simple kind of litmus test is the behavioral, the financial, and the type of relationship. So um, those, so the behavioral, generally speaking, how much control do you have and how much how, do you have the right to control what the worker is doing? So they, the neutral language they use is the worker to make this determination. Um, and a lot of these, you can look at how difficult the job is, how much instruction is involved, um, et cetera, et cetera. But essentially it's just, if you're exclusively controlling what somebody is doing as a worker um, and they don't have a lot of autonomy, uh, then it's going to look a lot more like an employment relationship. 
In other words, they look like your employee. And generally speaking, with simpler tasks and things that are a little bit simpler and don't require a lot of skill, that tends to look more like an employee relationship. So those are the kind of the behavioral aspects. Um, and uh, uh, one way they can mitigate this is a little bit is if, if, you're, if you're contracting with uh, an independent contractor's company, if they have an LLC and you're engaging in a relationship with their company, that tends to look a lot more like independent contractor. It doesn't save you, but it tends to look a bit more like that. So if you can, if you have somebody that wants to be an independent contract, for example, you can tell them, well, form an LLC and let's establish an arm's length relationship where it's my company and your company, because that tends to look a, more, a lot more like a... It can uh, help, assuming there's economic substance involved. Yes, yes. It can't just be a sham company, but um, that's the nature of it. Uh, the second factor is financial. Uh, are and that's are are all the circumstances, um, the business aspects controlled by the payer, so that's the employer, in that sense. In the and, case, and sometimes the factual thing is, with an independent contractor, you're usually paid by the job, right? Rather, and with an employee, you can see someone tending to be paid in terms of a time, a right. period of time, right? Which is is an interesting distinction because th if you're being paid by the job, you're usually trying to be more efficient to make profit on the difference between the amount of time I've invested in the money I'm going to make, which looks like someone who's independent, as opposed to an employee who's being paid to do a certain thing for a certain number of hours at an hourly rate. Right. And that's what they make. There's no opportunity for profit, which is oftentimes the distinction. It, it, it becomes a very important distinction where independent contractors have the opportunity to make profit and employees only have the opportunity to make the money that they can make with their time. Right, right. Yeah, it, yes, exactly. If you're negotiating a salary or a consistent payment with somebody, it just begins to look more like an employment relationship. That's just generally speaking what people are going to look at. And that kind of bleeds into the third factor, which is the type of relationship. Um, if you're doing things like benefits, pension plans, um, insurance, vacation, et cetera, et cetera, it begins to look more like employment. So if, if somebody is negotiating as an independent contractor with your company and they're saying, uh, I'd really like to have health insurance and I want to get health insurance, that should be a big cue, a big flag that you have an employee on your hand. Um, and you should negotiate an employment. One of the ways you can deal with this, by the way, is have an employment of, employer of record step in. If you don't want to act, if you don't want to deal with the HR, maybe you're a small business, you're trying to run things as lean as possible, you don't want to have a HR department, you don't want to pay for all these things, you, you, you don't mind paying for them, but you don't want to necessarily deal with all the administration. You can hire an employee of record, employer of record, sorry. They can hire that person and then you become the beneficiary of their employment through that employer of record. That's one way to deal with it. But um, the reason this is important is because there are consequences to not having the correct um, classification for a worker. And the consequence is, first of all, the IRS, if this, well, this is typically what happens. Typically the way this goes is something goes wrong in an employment relationship or a worker relationship, let's say. They go to their local employer employment commission. Typically, the, the worker doesn't even know that they're being treated as an independent contractor. They don't care about the difference. They just care about getting a paycheck, et cetera, et cetera. 
they'll go to their local employment commission um, and they'll say, I was mistreated for this, this, and this. The employment commission with the lawyers we worked with that do labor and employment, they're automatically going to assume that they were already in an employee relationship. They're not going to care what the contract says. They're not going to care about any of that stuff. They're just going to assume this is your employee. Now, if that's your employee, now you are subject to all of the um, employment law of that state, whatever state that they're in, if they're in the United States. So if you're in a more employee-friendly state, typically the blue states tend to be more employee-friendly, Colorado, California, New York, these kind of states, they're going to have a lot of very robust and strong statutory hooks that they can come after the company with. Then if that happens, they're going to give a little phone call to the IRS in D.C. or Ogden, wherever they are, and they're going to want back taxes for all the self-employment tax that you didn't pay during the time that you were employing them. Which So not only do you have an HR problem on your hand uh, with the Employment Commission, but now you have to deal with unpaid taxes. So it's kind of a double whammy. It's a, it's a much higher risk. That's why it's important to get this classification right. Exactly. So, um, yeah, that becomes very important. Uh, and typically, uh, now, a, a lot of times with, with young entrepreneurs especially, the workers will come to them and they'll want a 1099 relationship because they can deduct expenses, et cetera, et cetera, and they can kind of reduce their own tax liability. And so typically that's appealing to them at the beginning. Um, and they don't really, a lot of times they don't even understand that the company is, is supposed to pay half of their self-employment tax. Or half of their employment-related taxes. Right, yeah, yeah sorry, half of their employment-related taxes. Um, so they're not even aware of that obligation. And a lot of times if they find that out down the road, um, they get a little disappointed because they're, they missed out on that, so. Um. Yeah, yeah, the interesting thing is, is if people want to establish a certain type of relationship, whether it's an independent employment or independent contractor or an employee relationship, you can have that desire, but then you actually have to follow through right? in terms of how you establish the relationship. And I think with of such a facts and circumstances and multi-factor related test, it's just helpful to go to examples. And, and the two ones that, I'll, uh, that I always think of is if you're operating an office and you need the office repainted and you go out and you find an individual who's a painter and they bring their own supplies and you sign a contract with them for the job for an X number of dollars to do the painting, uh, to do all the painting in the office and they have a month to do it, you don't tell them when they come in. They right. bring their own supplies. They bring their own skills. They bring their own clothing, their own boots, their own paintbrushes, everything. They get the job done. They make a potential profit. They make all the decisions with respect to their work. I'm not going to come over and tell them, oh, you painted this incorrectly. Right. Clearly, this person is an, Clearly independent, an independent contractor. contractor. And yeah. on top of that, that painter is probably painting or is hopefully painting, if he's good at his business, is painting multiple other spaces he's right. not just servicing them exactly that's a pretty quintessential independent contractor as opposed to the person in my office who let's just use an example of a uh, a, a secretary i've potentially had that worker come in at a very specific time in a very specific uniform i've paid them by the hour to paint the office. To paint the office. Right. Well, not to paint the office. I'm just saying someone who's sitting at the front desk as a secretary, like right. a true secretary. Right, right. Um, 
that is that's an employee particularly if they're participating in the employee related benefits um, they have a certain amount of paid time off all those things that's an employee even if i wanted to call them an independent contractor i don't have the ability to they are an employee and must be compensated via w-2 um, and if that person decides to paint in the office, et cetera, there's still a, there's still an employee. Right. It doesn't matter. They don't all of a sudden become an independent contractor yeah, to do it, that. Yeah. It, it, but yeah. those are two pretty clear examples of one versus the other. But it gets complicated depending on the type of business that you're in. Right. It gets it, it's per, particularly in professional services and that yes. environment. The the water gets really muddy. Quickly. It really does, and um, and the so Brock just mentioned um, having multiple having different clients. If if an independent contractor has a lot of different clients, that's a great sign that they they are an independent contractor. But apparently, the IRS has been moving away from that uh, emphasis as a factor because they understand if you're an independent contractor, a lot of times you might get up most of your business from one client. And it's, it's difficult to get a lot of different clients sometimes. Um, and so it becomes less important. So if you if you have an independent contractor and they're only really working for you or you don't know if they're working for somebody else, it's not necessarily a problem, but it could be it could become a problem. So just it to... Be. It's one of those things where if you have multiple different people that the contractor is servicing, it's a really great factor right. to have. Yeah. Um, but if it's one, it won't necessarily kill you. Right. So, and Brock uses the phrase facts and circumstances. That's kind of a legal term for if it ever came to a court, what the court would do would be they would just look at the facts and sort of add up the factors. One of the easy, in law school, we used to do factor tests and they were <laughs> pretty easy because all you do is just line up these factors and, and match the facts up with each one. Give it a plus, give it a minus, and at the end you kind of make a decision as to whether or not that was this or that. It's kind of a way to make a litmus test. So the the tax court kind of elaborated on these factors, degree, degree of control exercised by the principal we already talked about, um, invest in work facilities used by the individual. So if, if they're working at your office, um, that's typically going to look more like an employee. The opportunity of the individual for profit or loss, like Brock was saying, if they're able to make a profit off of the job they're doing for you, that's going to look more like an independent contractor. Uh, whether or not the principal can discharge the individual, if you can fire them, um, that's a big deal uh, because of the, that looks more like an employment relationship. Whereas with the independent contractor, you signed a contract to pay them for the job that they did. You could have a breach. And you would have to call it a breach, yeah, yeah as opposed to just firing them or discharging them. So whether the work is part of the principal's regular business. So if they're just doing things that are routine for your business, um, that could look more like an employment relationship. The permanency of the relationship, it's been happening for a long time, or if it's a you know several-year contract, that begins to look more like employment. Um, and the relationships the parties believed they were creating. So the intent, um, if, if you negotiated it like it was an employment relationship, then they're probably going to think it was an employment relationship. So... Um, those are some of the factors. Now, it's not a bad thing to have employees, and we encourage a lot of our clients to to move certain individuals toward employment because it just lowers the risk profile all around. You can have, yes, you do have to pay um, half of their employment-related taxes, but it can be beneficial because it can reduce their overall liability profile of the company. Well, 
Yeah, generally, you want to make sure that you're following the law in general. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It's not just it's not just carrots here, guys. There are sticks. Yeah. Th there are <laughs> there are some pretty big sticks at play. <laughs> then there's also, as what Kevin is alluding to, there are some carrots in terms of when you have a true employee where you're investing them in them like a true employee, you're building a certain amount of goodwill right. that you're not necessarily getting with an independent contractor. Right. Which I think is a soft point that's sometimes f forgotten. And, and you're correct, you're totally reducing your risk profile by m categorizing people correctly. But sometimes you may want to push certain relationships towards employment to build that form of goodwill to build that more long-term relationship and to also provide to your workers a greater spectrum of benefits rather right. than just cash. Right. Um, you can help relieve some of the stresses out of their life from operating their own businesses right. by taking that on, aggregating it across multiple different workers um, where you're able to provide benefits they might not have already had. Right. Um, so there are some certain things that are, that are great in terms of having real employees. Right, exactly. And uh, it, if you have a business philosophy in which your human resources are your most valuable asset, which a lot of times is true, um, then it makes sense to actually build some goodwill with your employees. It makes sense, and, and, it, and it's helpful too because if, if the independent contractor is outside of your business and the employee is in it, right, they're, they're literally inside of it, you're building one of the, the human capital. You're right. building an incredible resource. Right. And sometimes it's worth investing in that rather to save a couple thousand dollars a year right. sometimes on the um, employment-related taxes. Yes. So yeah, and uh, that's outside. There's <laughs> a light outside. We're in the habit of the light. And the other thing is non-competition. So if, you're, if they're an employee... Yeah, um, you can you can limit their ability to go and work for a competitor, whereas an independent contractor, as soon as you start saying you can't compete with me, you can't go and start your own business, you can't work for this person, you can't do that one, then that contract itself looks like an employment agreement. It starts to look like yeah. One. So it really to it really crosses the line there. So if they're an independent contractor, it, and the analogy is if you were to go tell a painter like someone that's painting your office, sorry, you but you can't paint for anybody else when you're working for me. They're just going to say no because they're trying to run a business. And so that it, the example is like if you're able to control, um, if you have a lot of valuable IP and you want to protect it and you want to keep people from competing and stealing it, then make them an employee. That's the way to, that's the way to deal with that. So, um, all right, really briefly, this last segment, which um, is sponsored by Elizabeth Morgan and Associates, a great firm uh, that we, rec <laughs> we recommend using, <laughs> which actually happens to be our firm. But um, this segment is, you might be an employee if. So we're just going to go through a couple of examples where if this is happening to you, then you're probably an employee. So, um, Brock, you show up on the first day, and they give you um, apparel with the branding on it, and they give you the tools, and they give you everything else, but they want to call you an independent contractor. Do you think that's a good approach? Probably an employee. <laughs> you might be an employee if you're compensation agreement says employee on the top <laughs> yes there's another, one. That's there's another one. one if your agreement says employee you're probably an employee if they try and argue that you're an independent contractor that's not a good argument you might be an employee if your boss is paying you by the hour yes. and has asked you to come to the office at a specific time yep if your boss can yell at you 
you might be an employee you might be an employee if um, your boss gave you all the tools that you need to work and trained you on specifically how he wants how he or she wants the work completed yes if it's very specific to the business and they have to train you and and get you involved in the minutia of how the business runs and train you very specifically you're probably an employee most likely most and unfortunately, you're dealing with a presumption of employment yes. here too. So, yes, you have to fight as a business owner. There is a presumption that the people working for you are your employees. Typically, it's best to just assume that. Now, the one exception to that is, um, which I guess I can make it as an example. What if you are working in a different country and you're working remote and you're not involved with the office in any way? and you're working in Portugal or Spain or something like that and you're working for an American company? Well, I haven't dealt with that example specifically. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have dealt with that example specifically. I'll defer to my colleague. (laughs) And um, in that context, it's still still kind of a factor test. There's still facts and circumstances that could become relevant. But the good thing is um, if you're no longer fighting a presumption because if they're if they're working for you in a different country and they're you're not, they're not coming into your office and they're not doing those things specifically, then you're not necessarily going to have to deal with the employment commissions from every different um, continent and every different country that you might be involved with. So you're when you're going to have some other tax issues that aren't implicated by yes. just employing U.S. citizens that are only U.S. citizens. Yeah. So and. In this particular example, this company was not a U.S. company either. This client of ours was not a U.S. company either. So um, that helped as well. But if you're a U.S. company involving foreign remote work, um, then it's probably going to be there. Those employees are going to have to um, fill out what's called a W-8 Ben, which is a, uh, essentially reporting to their governments the benefits they're getting um, from this U.S. company. So, so it's that, kind of a perfunctory filing, but it's still necessary to do. So if I understand you correctly, if you have a foreign worker, right, we're not necessarily dealing with the same presumption towards employee, but the same factors essentially apply. Yes. And then there's another overlay of how the U.S. and foreign government taxes interplay with well, it. Well, you're sorry, when you say factors, it, it, it depends. You're kind of out of the purview of the employment rules of the United okay. States. Okay. So that's why we're not as concerned about it when it comes to different foreign countries. And a lot of times you'll only have one employee in that country. And if that's the case, then there's not a big issue there. Now, if you have a bunch of employees, for example, we had clients with a bunch of employees in Australia and they were working together in the same building, um, that leads to other issues hmm. because then, then it begins to look like um, just you're just running a business somewhere else in a different country. So those are, those are compliance things. We can talk about those on a future podcast. But as far as um, the employment side of things go, if they're foreign, if they're remote, then um, it's it's a little more kosher to have them as 1099. So, all right, that's going to do it. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email me. My uh, podcast email is kreddington at pridearypodcast.com. Brock, you can get in contact with him at bbales at emalegal.com <laughs> once again this podcast is informational we're not giving out legal advice this is just broadly speaking talking about law that is publicly available if with information that's publicly available to any business owner or anything else we just we just want to get that information out there and explain it in an approachable way uh, if you want to hire us that's great we'd love to work with you we'd love to help you organize your business and help it grow 
But um, strictly speaking, this is not a legal advice podcast. This is just informational. So, but if you do want to work with us, you can go to our website. Um, you can Google Elizabeth Morgan and Associates, and you'll find our website there. You can email either of us, and um, we'd love to speak with you and talk with you. Um, at this point, we're pretty slammed when it comes to clients, but nonetheless, we still make time. We love working with entrepreneurs and business people. So give us a call, and we'll see what we can do for you. And if we can't do anything for you, we can call somebody else and get you in contact with the right people. So look forward to speaking um, if you're interested, and that'll be it. See you next time.